This is Shifting Our Schools, episode 123, Classroom Management in the Virtual Classroom. Listen up, educators. Are you looking to take your classroom to the next level? The technological shift in education is happening right now. If you're looking to integrate technology into your classroom, you're in the right place. Welcome to Shifting Our Schools with your host, Jeff Udick. Well, welcome back to another episode of Shifting Our Schools. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope Once again, this podcast finds you healthy and safe as we continue to go through this COVID-19 crisis together. Uh, We've been having a blast over at Reimagine Washington Ed, where we now have over 3,500 educators who are reimagining teaching and learning for their students and for themselves as we continue to try and figure out this idea that we call distance learning and not just any distance learning, what we're talking about, and let's remember this, we're talking about emergency distance learning. And there are so many things that go into an emergency distance learning that we are going to be able to apply in our classrooms. And one of the things we've been talking about with educators over at Reimagine Washington Ed is that really what we're in right now is a gr- maybe the greatest action research project ever undertaken in modern age in education? And can we see it through that lens? Can we get be giving and be getting feedback? Can we look at what's working? And we know that this isn't working for some of our kids, but we also know that regular school wasn't working for some of our kids. And we are hearing stories about some of the students who regular school, for lack of a better term, wasn't working for that this learning is actually working for. So let's take this time that we have been given to be not just thinking about the kids who this isn't working for, but can we figure out what kids is this working for? Who is this working for? And how do we make sure we take some of this, some of this learning that we are going through right now and bring it back to our classrooms? That is what I am loving about uh, working with all of these educators from around the state of Washington. We are hearing incredible stories. Uh, If you would like to follow along, we have the hashtag ReimagineWaEd on Twitter. That is where we're sharing amazing success stories that have been coming out. Uh, If you go back through these last couple podcasts, you'll, you'll, that, These are the stories that we're telling, everything from the virtual keynote that I gave to the state up through some of the things we've been talking about. And one of the things I'm excited about is that Reimagine Washington Education, we are now doing webinars where we are giving free webinars and anybody in the world can join our free webinars, but they are sponsored by our Association of Educational Service Districts here in the state of Washington. And uh, we are able to bring people together to sit down and think through this crisis and what are some of the things that we need to be focused on. And I'm excited to bring you our first webinar. It is with Patrick Green and Heather Dowd, who have been on this podcast a couple times and who wrote uh, the best-selling book, Classroom Management in the Digital Age. And I brought them in to give us a webinar on what are the strategies out of that book that we can take and maybe just adapt a little bit for classroom management in the virtual age. And so this is a webinar that was given last week. We had about 300 people join us live, uh, and it is also on YouTube. You can see it over at Patrick Green's YouTube channel. I will make sure that there's a link to that in the show notes if you'd like to watch the video version. But I thought I'd also release it as a audio version as well. I've put a link 
in the show notes also to the chat transcript. So you can hear some of the things that were going on in the chat transcript. The chat was a fantastic place to hang out and uh, just a great place to be. So there's some, some learning in there. And Also, I'll give you the link to their website for their book where you're going to be able to download some of the posters that you hear them talk about and some of just the strategies we're talking about as we all start thinking about what does classroom management look like, not just now in emergency uh, distance learning, but when we get back to school, we're going to be in an even greater blended learning environment. And what are some of these strategies that we can take and apply when we get back into our school? So that's going to be this week's episode. I hope you are staying safe. I hope you and your family are doing well. We will get through this. And I'm just excited to bring you this along with other webinars. If you want to sign up for a webinar and join us live, you can do that over at the reimaginewaed.com website. So it's reimaginewaed.com, all one word. And you will find over there, you'll see a link to join our next webinar, which happens this week. We have one a week from here through June 19th, and we're so excited for the lineup to bring you. But this one is Patrick Green and Heather Dowd talking about classroom management in the virtual classroom. And with that, on with the show. I will forget. There we go. Uh, So glad to be bringing this to you live across the state of Washington. Thank you. People checking in already in the chat room. Uh, As you are coming to us live, uh, or we're coming to you live, I guess is the way it goes in this webinar. Uh, You can go back and watch this. We are recording it. So if you're joining us in a recording, welcome and thank you for joining us. There are two things at the bottom you might want to open. If you are a attendee, you will notice as an attendee, you don't have any rights to talk. We can unmute you. You should be able to find a place Place where you can raise your hand if there is something you'd like to say. When we get to the end here, we'll take some questions uh, and I can unmute you on my end. But also down at the bottom, you should see a Q&A. So that's one thing different that webinars have over regular Zoom meetings is they have this Q&A session where you as attendees can ask questions in that Q&A area. And then you can also upvote the question. So if somebody else asks a question in there, you can answer that question, you can add on to that question, but you can also upvote questions. And that's just a great way because we're going to be up around, we're at 175 and still climbing. So it'll be probably close to two, 300 of us by the time this gets done. Uh, It's a great way for us just to know what are the most important questions as they come out as we go through this. So, so excited to bring my good friends, Patrick and Heather uh, here with you. who wrote the book, Classroom Management in the Digital Age. And we're gonna be doing, oh look, Patrick even has a copy of it there for you. Um, um, I, pro- I have a copy somewhere too, but maybe not here. Do you have one? Oh, there it is. There it is, the best-selling book, right? Classroom Management in the Digital Age. But we're gonna go ahead and get started. I'll have Patrick and Heather introduce themselves and then they'll take it away. Patrick. Awesome. So, hi, I'm Patrick Green, and I'm coming to you from Kashmir, Washington. Excited to have so many Washingtonians around. Um, And I'm so excited to be introducing you to my good friend, Heather, but I'll do that in a moment. So, I, Heather and I wrote a book together, Classroom Management in the Digital Age, and it was after we had started working with teachers uh, implementing a one-to-one laptop program. And what we had discovered was people didn't have a lot of questions about creating engaging lessons. They didn't have a lot of worry about that. They had, they had worries about, well, yeah, but now I'm going to put this 
really competitive screen in between me and the kids and it they're going to they they would rather watch what's on there than pay attention to me and so a lot of their questions and concerns and worries were about classroom management and and in the end we realized that was a lot of the work that we were doing as we were going one to one and we also got to work with a bunch of great teachers that we worked together with to kind of come up with well what are all the things that we need to know as we do put these powerful productive and creative tools in front of students because we could also use the word distracting they're also distracting tools and so what what is it that we need to do and and heather and i got together and in the end wrote a book to share with the world here's what we learned as we worked with some great teachers at singapore american school to come up with what does every teacher need to know to have the confidence and uh, to, to be able to move forward and take on this new learning journey, take everything they've ever known about classroom management and tweak it and change it and adapt it to now students have these powerful tools. So we can't wait to talk with you about that as how those things apply to the distance learning age. I think we're calling this virtual classroom, but really we're talking about emergency distance learning. So we're excited to talk with you about how a lot of those things transition over. But before we do, I want, I want you to hear from my amazing colleague, one of the best, one of my favorite humans in the whole world, Heather Dow. Oh, Patrick, the feeling is mutual. You are one of my favorite human beings in the world too. And I miss working with you every day. Um, hi everybody, I'm Heather Dowd. I'm coming to you from Rock Falls, Illinois. It's a small town about two and a half hours west of Chicago. Um, I, I'm excited to be speaking um, with, with to all of you in Washington. I've um, visited several times. I've gotten to do a lot of work with Jeff um, in the Seattle area. I've been to Walla Walla, got my wine membership. Um, yeah, so Washington, I, I really enjoy your state. So I'm excited to be here. Um, just a little, just background context on me. I'm a former high school physics teacher. Um, I taught a little bit of math before moving to middle school, um, which uh, my mom was a middle school science teacher and she always said it was the best age to teach. Uh, and I moved to middle school and thought, yeah, she might have been right. I thought she was crazy, but she might have been right. Um, and I was an instructional technology coach uh, with Patrick at Singapore American School um, before moving into my role now, which I work with um, the Dynamic Learning Project. We support coaches and their administrators in implementing coaching programs that help teachers use technology in meaningful and impactful ways. So um, Patrick and I are really excited to be here um, to talk with you and kind of take the work that we've done and what we've learned and um, discuss it in the context of distance learning, which uh, we all find ourselves thrown into in the past couple of months. Yeah, so I don't know, Jeff, shall I start sharing my screen and we just roll yeah. with it here? Yeah, I think uh, go ahead and we'll, uh, we'll be in the chat room and looking for questions and let you guys kind of roll with this for a little bit. Oh, okay, awesome. So kind of as an agenda to let folks know where we're headed. We'll actually spend a little more time on introductions here in a second, but then the way Heather and I like to do this is, is kind of work through our sections of the book. And we've really broke the book down into classroom procedures, classroom expectations, teaching tips, and partnering with parents. And, and what we find is one thing that was really helpful as people embraced a one-to-one -one laptop program 
was taking what they were good at or familiar with previously and applying it into a new context. So we will actually kind of talk you through that as well, even whether or not you had laptops or devices in the classroom, but applying that and those thoughts that we had there to the distance learning environment. And so this is kind of where we're gonna go. We introduced ourselves, but we wanna know how are you? How are you? And we, you can toss that in the chat. Jeff will see it because I'm not actually looking at it anymore. Feel Are free we... to use words, emojis, happy faces, sad faces, angry faces, frustrated faces. Yeah. How have I, you survived? Just I, if I had Padlet out right now, I'd be asking you for a GIF that would explain how you're doing. We typically find that people are a little bit stressed out. And folks, of course you are. You are learning to do distance learning, having never been taught it before and having to apply it right now. Like you, you're, not, you're not getting to you know, take a course and then do it next year. You are, you are having to apply all of your learning right now. We would like you to uh, toss in there, and I don't know, Jeff, is it better to do it in the Q&A? What classroom management challenges are you having in this emergency distance learning situation? Yeah, crowd. put that into the Q&A section. So again, down at the bottom of your screen, you should see a little Q&A button. And I think that'd be a great place for us to kind of look at what, what has been working uh, so far. And what, what are those challenges, challenges. That, yeah. that you're finding? And then Jeff tells me there's a way to upvote those. So if we get a chance here later to kind of jump into those, that would be great. So you can toss those in. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pause and wait for you. Um, Cause Heather and I wanna get into some general things that we're finding a lot of people are, are dealing with right now. Anyway. Patrick, can I just quick respond to a couple of things that I saw as you're putting in your um, challenges or upvoting, um, I did see a few things, the, the chat's moving fast, but I did see a few things Deandra put that she's feeling an upside down smiley face, which I thought was pretty appropriate. Mm. Um, and I also, I, I, I missed who it was, but I did see someone put in that they lost a friend to COVID-19. So I'm sorry, that's, this is such a hard time. Um, and then I also saw another one that now I'm gonna forget which one I wanted to say that I thought was, oh, somebody said, um, I'm overwhelmed maybe, but a little bit excited. Am I allowed to say that? Uh, yes, you are allowed to say that. Uh, another educator friend of mine allowed me to say that by saying it herself, and I thought, yes, I mean, this is, a, this is a sad time, but it's also an interesting time in education, and there's some interesting, exciting things happening, so. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. All right, okay. So what, when Heather and I think about classroom management, and even when we were helping teachers to move into a device-rich classroom, we would ask, what is the analog equivalent to what you're experiencing, right? Like, what did students, because it wasn't the first time that students misbehaved was now that we had laptops or iPads or whatever it was. So we'd always get people to think, well, before we get too upset about this, can we just think, well, what did the students used to do? And then think about our strategies. So similarly, we're going to think about those of you that have had laptops and devices in your classroom, as we think about how to deal with classroom management situations in a distance learning environment, well, what was the in-class equivalent? What did that look like? And so those are just kind of some two overarching things to pause, give students a little bit of grace because they're learning some new things here as well, 
and think, well, was there something that used to happen before the technology that was similar? And how, how would I have dealt with that? So those are some overarching themes. And, and I think Heather and I will tie back to those often. But we wanted to start with the number one, if you only hear one thing, the number one most effective digital classroom management strategy. Whether you are in a classroom or in emergency distance learning, here it is. Heather, do you want to do this? I'm happy to. Okay. What is it, Heather? It is facilitating, cultivating good relationships with your students. Ah! There it is. That's it. Nothing is going to work. None of your, like you can have these elaborate plans and I'm going to do this and you can have some, all these policies. And, but if you're not, if you have not spent the time devoting time to building relationships, to creating a culture of care in your classroom, in your online classroom, then none of that's really going to work. What I love about the work that we've been doing here in Washington with Jeff and Reimagine Washington Ed, all of that work that we've done is starting with relationships. And by the way, this, this is not something new that we're tying to watch. This is what we wrote in the book. I don't know how many years ago it was now, Heather, three years ago. The first thing that this says is nothing that you do. Don't, e don't keep reading on if you're not going to invest time in relationships. Because ultimately, these are humans that we're dealing with. And right now, with emergency distance learning, it is all about making sure that kids feel connected to an adult who cares about them. And that's why we have set up the structures we have with office hours, and I know, Heather, some of this is new terminology to you as, as you're working in other states as well, but we, we talk about office hours as a way where people get together with their students and they're not teaching new content, but they're actually focusing on the relationship side of things, SEL, and all of that stuff that allows students to connect with a human who that they, they know that cares about them. And Patrick, I'll just throw this in here because I think this is a question that comes up quite often with this. Uh, Lisa put in the chat and just said, for some teachers don't think that relationships and classroom management can coexist. It has to be one or the other. What do you say to teachers who, who kind of have that belief that there's this difference between classroom management and having a relationship with your kiddos? Heather, do you want to jump on that? Are you sure, I can jump on that one. Um, gosh, I, as a teacher, former teacher, former classroom teacher, I, that doesn't resonate with me. I, I feel like it was all one and the same. Um, I feel like it was my good relationships with my students that allowed me to create an environment in the classroom that where learning could happen, where we weren't, yes, there are distractions. Yes, students misbehave. I mean, their brains are not fully formed. Um, but because I had that baseline of a good relationship, it allowed me to have real conversations with students when those things happened. And I, to me, that is classroom management. It's the, what is the conversation that you have when a behavior happens that is not the behavior you want to happen? Um, and without a good relationship, that's a really hard conversation to have. And I would add to that, the ideally, you want students to own that caring culture as well. And it's not, it's not your classroom, it's our classroom. And 
if they're like, there can be, there can be a boundary of some sort, whether that's, this is my personal area where I've got some personal stuff, you know, this isn't for students, these, these, this part is, whatever it is, like you can set up a number of processes and procedures and boundaries and things, but ultimately we all own that we want all students to feel comfortable in this place because it is in a comfortable place where students can take academic risks and push themselves. If they are nervous about how they will be perceived or, or, or what would happen if you got something wrong or looked silly, if, they're not, if they don't have that comfort level, then they're not taking the risks we want them to take. Uh, we've been sharing an article about failure and we know that we learn through failure, we learn through struggle. And if we're not making, we're not working on relationships and showing students that we care, then we are not providing a place where students can take risks and maybe fail, but learn through that failure. So that's what I would say. I would say, um, yeah, they actually work together. And when you have good relationships with students, students will own a lot of that classroom management as well. They will help you with the processes and the procedures and lifting other students up and sharing uh, the mic so that everybody has a voice because they want to be a part of that community. I like what Robin threw in there. Having a good relationship doesn't equal being their friend. You're not their best friend. There are boundaries and expectations within that relationship. I like that, Robin. And maybe that response, maybe that's a, uh, Lisa, I saw your clarification um, referring to teachers that work hard at relationships and they have that, but the classroom management is what doesn't exist. I wonder if that's the problem is cultivating more of a friend relationship. Like I want the students to love me. I'm going to do whatever they want versus mm -hmm. no, I want, us to respect each other. Um, maybe a little different, but. but there's another number one most effective digital classroom management strategy that we want to share. They're actually tied. They're tied for number one. And I love this because again, this ties to what we're talking about in Washington State, but Heather and I wrote this years ago about classroom management. Creating engaging lessons. Folks, if you are asking students to do things that are just tedious and there's no interest and there's, I mean, remember that little carrot we used to dangle that was called the grade? That's really not there anymore in emergency distance learning in Washington State. So if that was the thing that you were holding on to that was going to, and I'm not, I'm not saying that that actually worked. I, I'm not, I'm, I don't know that I believe that the grade really was a motivator. But if you want students to be on task, then you need to create engaging lessons. And how do we do that? How do we create engaging lessons? There's all sorts of ways. One of the ways is, and OSPI has even said this for us here, sorry, Heather, that's the Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction here in Washington State. And they've said that we should build on, and I don't have it in front of me, but we should build on the in, individual interests and needs of each student. That we should, and that is personalized learning. That is how you create engaging lessons. You make whatever you're doing apply to the students so that they want to do it. Because ultimately, folks, they don't, nothing's mandatory anymore. They don't have to do anything in emergency distance learning. Yes, I do. I have heard now there are some schools saying, well, if they ghost, if a student just stops doing anything, then we're going to be able to give them an incomplete. Okay, but what if they just do enough, right? Like the whole point is like, do we want them to learn or, or what? We want them to learn. We want them to learn for learning's sake. That's never been more attainable than right now. 
when we've actually been told, you know, we don't have to teach the test. You can create engaging lessons. You can, you can ask students to do something and then look at it with a lens of, would I want to do this? Would anyone want to do this? How could I tweak this to make it so that someone might want to do it? How can I make this more engaging? Heather and I used to get the whole like, well, how, how do I make sure they're going to be on task? Heather and I have taught classes with 100 students in one room with 100% on task behavior because what we were asking them to do was engaging. Well, what does that look like? Well, it might be that they're making something. It might be that they're creating something that doesn't currently exist. Now, does a five paragraph essay on the American Civil War exist? Yes, it already exists. Someone's done a better job than probably I'm going to do if you gave me that task right now. But does a three minute film exist? I don't know, maybe. But I might be interested in film and I might, or I might be interested in, in stop motion, Lego. The point is I'm still telling a story and I'm still able to show you what I know, but now you've given me options that I can engage with. And Patrick, I would even add on top of that, if we're, if, if let's say our outcome is we want kids to write, I think there are other, like we, you know, we always say, you know, oh, the five paragraph essay and, and, and fair enough in academic writing, kids are going to need to know how to do a five paragraph essay. Now, how many of those you should write in a year, I think is something we should be debating. Yeah, how sure. many five paragraph essays between science, social studies, and all the subjects should a kid be writing? Um, I'll use my goddaughter as an example in this, in this crisis we've been, she is in two different band classes. And so she's had to write two five paragraph essays for band in this crisis. Now, I don't know how that is relevant to band. I would want my kids out playing or finding out the way to create a quartet on Instagram. Like I think there's other engaging things you can do. But I want us to also understand that there's a lot of places we can have kids write. So some of the, and, and again, I think these are just some of the ways we have to think that we now live in a connected world. So your student could still be writing about the World War II, but maybe it's on a World War II blog where they leave a comment to somebody. Maybe they find an article on the New York Times and the New York Times constantly is taking comments created by kids, thoughtful comments created by students and promoting those on the New York Times website. So when we think about five paragraph essay, I think we also have to expand our idea of, okay, five paragraph essay, but where, where do you post that five paragraph essay? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be to the teacher. In 2020 and beyond, that five paragraph essay could be part of a book. So maybe the entire class writes a five paragraph essay and you, for $2.75, you could publish a book, right? I mean, there's just, I think we have to think beyond just what that, what's that, what's that writing? Where could that be? And is there a more authentic place for that writing to take place? Just an idea. I love it. And I, I, I want to add on to that because you're talking about audience right there. That remember that in distance learning, students are right now, not distance learning, in pandemic, go home and don't come to school anymore. Students are feeling alone. And so one way to make an engaging lesson is to actually find ways to get students to collaborate online. And there's all sorts of ways to do it. And there's fantastic tools. And many of you have chosen those tools as your home base, part of your core four here in Washington State. But that's one of the things that we need to be figuring out. Like, am, I, am I doing this asynchronous video and then telling the students to, as Jeff was suggesting, write a paragraph that they turn into the teacher or fill out this worksheet and turn it into the teacher? 
or am I using Flipgrid where every student creates a short video response that every other student gets to see? And although the students aren't interacting, they're at least sharing ideas with one another. How do I take that to the next level? How do I engage them further? How do I make learning social when right now people aren't allowed to be social? That would be engaging in distance learning. I think that is a huge essential question. How do I make learning social in a time where we can't be social? What a fantastic question for us as educators to really grapple with because the tools are here, right? And people are out, people are, are in the chat, like oh, you, Flipgrid, you can set up Flipgrid and be social in a, where we, when we can't be social, right? So how are we creating those? And I think those lead back to engaging lessons and relationship building, relationship amongst our students and relationships with us, right? So that's a great question, I like that. And, and it actually kind of addresses, I don't know if, if we're, there's going to be a time for us to address the challenges, but Amui, Amui, I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Feel free to correct me in the chat. Um, the, the number one challenge voted up right now is how to, in case we start the year with remote learning, how do we build community and relationships with students we don't know yet? And again, I think that goes back to this essential question. How do we create learning that is social because that's how we get to know our new students is by being social in the classroom how do we create that when we don't when we are not allowed to be together in the same room i mean there there's lots of tools and and i guess i don't have one answer emily but you know there's flipgrid i, I guess my answer would be try everything you got to find the thing that engages those kids um one of the things this might come up i think this is going to come up later but i'll say it now because i think it fits um, as you think about how you communicate with students, um, you know, we can do the synchronous thing like we're doing right now. We can do lots of asynchronous activities. Flipgrid is great for asynchronous communication. Um, but how can you also, along with the learning piece, so along with asking students to do an activity that is directly related to your objective, where are you giving them space to just get to know each other? So maybe that's, 15 minutes at the or you know 10 minutes at the end of every synchronous call where we have no agenda right now we're just going to chit chat and i'm going to allow my students to talk to each other um thanks patrick uh or maybe it's you know creating a, a grid on flipgrid that's for nothing other than what's on your mind let's get to know each other um so i think i think it's even more important if if we continue in remote learning to create those spaces, those social spaces um, for students to share what they want to share. Um, and, and, you know, it depends on what, what your students have access to. Maybe that ends up being a phone call. You know, like I'm just going to call every student and get to know you. And I love that what you're saying, because it makes me think of like, I'm even like, I love this because this is just what we all do, right? Uh, but I love this because you have me thinking now, if I'm, if I'm starting to plan my classroom for next fall, I'm starting to think of, okay, I was a fourth grade teacher. That's the lens I usually default to. I need to find a place that becomes my hangout because my kids used to hang out on the playground together. My kids used to hang out at lunch together and that's where they built school community. And so I'm going to have to somehow, if, if, that, if we don't have that, how do I create a hangout area that you're saying heather doesn't have a lot of structure it's a place for kids to share when they get a new puppy and it's a it's a place for kids to share and, and be silly and be funny and try stuff on um 
And I know that's difficult because those are also the spaces where there's less adult supervision. But there's less adult supervision because it's when you're not around adults, it's how you learn to be a kid. It's how you learn what hits. How do you make a friend cry or how do you make a friend laugh are things you try when there aren't a lot of adult supervision around. And so that's going to be kind of an interesting place for us to try to navigate through this to say, how do we set up a space, but yet going through a school where we must make sure that, you know, kids are being nice to each other, but still set up some kind of hangout room, for lack of a better term. I think uh, you really have me thinking about that because I think you're right. We're, as we get into that, um, start thinking about next year, I think that's going to become a critical piece. And the older the kids, I think more critical that's going to become. So I'm loving where this is going. We're already a half hour into this. We were hardly any slides in. So I'm, I'm thinking about timing and that's fine. We, maybe we won't follow this agenda so much because I do like that we're really hitting the bigger picture ideas here. That we're talking about relationships, we're talking about engaging students and, and thinking about our learning design and how do we make it social because those are the things that students are missing. And I'm, I might just say, we want to always with distance learning, take the best of our brick and mortar system and move it online. So those things that Jeff was talking about, all that socialization stuff, some of that is the, some of the best stuff we do in schools and we wanna be moving that online. So Heather was talking a little bit about how we're communicating with students. And uh, I guess I just wanted to toss in a, a little off track of where she was going, but I would say consistently. We wanna be consistently communicating with students and, and not just frequency, but also in a place where they're not getting bombarded by a bunch of different ways of communication, right? And that's why in Washington State, we've said, you know, pick your core four, hit these things hard and really utilize them. There's one place for students to come back to. And another term we use is this idea of wayfinding. Are we making it simple? Do students, some people, some teachers are using a Google slide deck where they're putting everything on one slide and they're just adding it to the slide deck. But that's kind of become their home base. Now, others of us are using really complex, powerful home bases, but I don't know. The Google slide deck, I love that idea from a wayfinding perspective. Where does the kid go? He goes to the Google slide deck. That top slide tells him exactly what he's supposed to do today or gives him the options for what he's going to get into. Um, one of the things we're asking is how can we help students manage their digital learning at home? Are we providing the scaffolding that we need to for them to learn in a way that they've never practiced before? without an adult who's, who knows how to do it, guiding them face to face. We might be the only person. I was thinking in our system here in Washington, knowing how much asynchronous video we're doing, one of the things that Heather and I say in the book is, you have to remind students. You can't just say, well, I told them, this is how we're gonna do things. You have to practice your procedures. You have to give students opportunities to learn them. Well, similarly, how are students managing their digital learning at home? Are we talking with them about that? Are we saying, don't forget, you'll probably be able to focus better if you close the door and put in earbuds or, you know, are we having those conversations? Are we asking students, how are you finding quiet time to be able to focus in a, in a house full of other kids too, right? Are, are we having these conversations? I'm gonna keep going unless Heather or Jeff jump in. One of the things Heather and I talk with people about is what does the wayfinding look like in your room, right? So I'm thinking, 
I used to have the objectives up on the screen. I'd have a, hey, do this, kind of a warm-up activity. What does that look like in distance learning? Are you still publishing your objectives to students? Do students know where they're going this week or next week? Or is it just day by day? Well, today he gave me worksheet 75. Oh, now we're on 86. I don't know why he skipped those other things. Or are you fully communicating to students? Here's where we're gonna head for the next two weeks. Are we giving some sort of pacing guide that helps students to see where we're going and how much time they should be dabbling in these different things as we go? That's along those same lines, are we giving students the ability, and I know you've all seen this one. If you're a Washington educator, you've seen this because we had it in one of our other slide decks. But the idea that students could own telling you where they're at rather than you taking their assignment and grading them and telling them where they're at with learning, that students could be showing you where they're at. Heather and I first saw this in, a, I think it was a seventh grade classroom. It wasn't a digital spreadsheet like this. It was a, a teacher who was working through the workshop model of writing with seventh graders. And they had student sticky notes with their names on it on the whiteboard where the students were putting themselves into the place that they are today. Today, I'm working on my outline. Today, I finished my outline and I need to consult with the teacher. So I'm putting my sticky note over here. Folks, you have lost the ability to walk around the room and scan desks. How are you scanning desks so that you can better communicate with students and meet their needs? Are you setting up some sort of spreadsheet like this that allows students to tell you where they're at? Oh, I think I'm really good at this. I need to work on this. Or I'm finished with this. I'm just starting that. I love this sheet. This is a great idea. The great digital, uh, a great digital alternative to what we saw in the classroom, the, the teacher that Patrick is referring to. I think somebody said this is impossible to pull off on a Microsoft sheet. I would say you don't even need a sheet. This could be a working document that every, maybe you create a template that every student has their own copy of that is shared with them in whatever you're using to share documents, Google Docs, 365, whatever. And the student, that's the expectation is that every day they're updating that and they're telling you this is where I'm at. Like it doesn't have to be a sheet. Yeah, and I think the mental the mental mind shift, like I'm always trying to remember, I'm always trying to think like, okay, what, how do I have to change my thinking as an educator? And I think as we get into this distance learning thing, one of the mental shifts we have to make is that every document should be able to be a collaborative document, period, end of discussion. I should be able at any, any moment in time, I should be able to make whatever I'm working on and share it at some level with somebody else. Which is why even if you work in a, if you work in a Microsoft, I, I have a Microsoft account, but I only use the online stuff. I don't use, I have not had a Microsoft app on my computer for over 10 years now. I use Microsoft, but I only use the online stuff because I want the ability, the moment I need to share something with my kids, I don't make another copy of it. And, and that's, that is a new mental shift, that we have one document where we can all work on together, or I get to share in, in different ways. So I think you're, I, I, love, I love the way you know, that we're setting this up. And, and we talk about this in one of our trainings, is how am I setting up systems for students to communicate with me, just not me always communicating with my, with my students. So the idea of a frequently asked questions document is, is, your, is you know, some teachers have like a sticky note, uh, questions on their wall. So we set up a frequently asked document where all the kids are now leaving questions to me. Like they're putting their sticky notes 
on the wall in the classroom. It just so now happens to be a frequently asked document in my Google Classroom or Canvas or whatever you're using. The same way with this. Like I think of this for me, this would be the same as the basket on the corner, right? So hey, when you finish your when you finish your assignments, they go in the basket over there. Hey, when you finish your assignments, you have to click it green on the sheet. That's how you turn it in. I'm not going to go in and, and look for it anywhere else until I see it's green on the sheet. You know, so you can I love this. You're like, you're reading our, the mind of the next slide, Jeff. How yeah. will you collect student work? And I'm actually going to skip over that because I think you, you're approaching it from a meteor or a, a more thematic way as well. Like, can, can we give ownership to students to this? Uh, and, and, and we should, right? So let's get into a little bit of the classroom expectations. What do we want students, how do we want them to behave? How do we want them to interact with one another? And, and Jeff was actually just talking about collaborative documents. And the first time that you do that with students, this is a classroom management concern that people have. What if they misbehave? Well, Heather, what if they misbehave? If they misbehave, this is a fantastic opportunity to have a, dis a discussion about digital citizenship. Everything begins with digital citizenship. And, and again, Heather and I would have said this back in the classroom where you were putting laptops in the classroom for the first time. We are now, and to Jeff's point, when you think about why would you ever have a document that was only for one person? Well, you might, but you would need to have thought of your reason for locking it down that way because there's so much power in the ability to be able to share it and have multiple editors and multiple viewers. And, and in that world, can kids be naughty? Yes, but guess what? Kids were naughty. Kids were naughty back when it was just paper and pencil. And kids were probably naughty, I don't know, but they were probably naughty back when it was slate and chisel and whatever, right? Like people are sometimes naughty. People are gonna pull the chair out from one another and we're gonna have to deal with it. You have to build in the fact that this is what we do in schools. And I like, you know, in the work that Jeff and I do in schools, we often are talking about the fact that when you look at any school's, shoot, I lost my motto, what is it? Mission, uh, mission statement. statement, thank you. Mission or vision statement, it's gonna talk about students becoming global citizens and interacting with, collaborating with the world, right? Like, well, how are they gonna learn to do that if we don't teach them? These are transferable skills. Working in an online space, hey, look everybody, I don't know how many people are in here, I think there was 200 when I last looked. You're all working from home. Learning is part of your work and you're learning from home right now. This is what we do. We collaborate online. We build things together. Rarely does anyone go build something on their own. People work in teams to develop products in all of these businesses out here. You know, there's not one guy working in a room creating the next iPhone. It's a team of folks because they can push each other. They can harness each other's ideas by teaching digital citizenship skills, which we could just call citizenship skills. Or we could just talk, call it socialization and being kind and responsible and all those things. And what I love is so many schools have their own acronyms for this. Like I, I, I have this, there's this balance of me saying, everyone's teaching digital citizenship and people say, no, not me, I'm the, I'm the whatever teacher. But then they'll, they can tell me their acronym for all of the character traits they want their students to exhibit. Folks, you're already doing it. You've been teaching digital citizenship. We're just calling it something else. Fine, have it be your fun little acronym. The kids will connect to that more anyway and build that in. Someone in one of our uh, trainings recently said, 
well, should we be using the chat in Zoom with third graders? I've heard that we should turn it off and not allow them. And of course, my response to that is, why? Why wouldn't you let them learn to use it in a responsible way? And you, you just go there. You, you know they're going to make a mistake if you don't go there with them and help them to understand it and learn from it. That reminds me the last time, like the first time I have my, uh, I, I was do, in a class where the first time we had third graders on a collaborative document. And both the teacher and I, I mean, you just know, right? They're third graders. At some point, somebody's going to say, you sneak and smell like poop. Like, it's just a third grade thing. It's going to happen. So you wait for it. Like, we're watching the document, just like, wait for it, wait for it. And there it is. And now we have a lesson, right? We have a lesson that we go file revision history and see, we can see everything that you wrote. And how do we work collaboratively? And is how do you not say mean things? Um, but we, we do that intentionally in our physical classrooms where we create structures for learning. Whether that's learning to be a friend, learning to cooperate in a group, learning how to be a good team member. And we have to create those same structures here. We have to set the structure up intentionally to teach the lesson. And so, yeah, I want them in those spaces. Heather, you know, sorry, you were gonna say something. Heather, were you gonna say something? Um, yeah, Deandra, I think we're kind of speaking to it right now. Deandra uh, put a post in here saying, this is the first time for a lot of students to be able to go, to be online without adult supervision 100% of the time. They don't know what digital citizenship is. Exactly. And I think this is the issue, right? If, if we, they might not get it at home. It's the same thing as Patrick was saying. We, we as teachers have always had to teach these things kindness, cooperation, collaboration, they may or may not be getting those lessons at home. Um, and we can argue about that until the sun goes down, but, um, well, the sun's going down soon, but, um, <laughs> but this is, I mean, I think it's our job as educators to provide the safe spaces for students to make the mistakes. And when teachers argue to me, well, we, we have to shut that down because they might be bad. I have always erred, and this is my bias coming out, I've always erred on the side of, no, we need to give them the chance to make that mistake so that we, the, the stakes are low here, right? Like yeah. we're in a fourth grade classroom, they're gonna make a little mistake, they're not gonna get into a whole lot of trouble. Okay, now you go in, I'm an adult and I've never learned this, I can get myself into a whole lot of trouble with social media, online, whatever, um, if I haven't learned those lessons. So. I, you know, this is our opportunity to create those safe spaces, allow students to make mistakes and facilitate the conversations that we want to be having with them. And let's remember, it. and let's remember, we are educators, we're already behind the eight ball. The average child in America touches a connected device for the first time at age two. So what is the average age that the first time a kid leaves a comment online? I, I guarantee it's probably before they come to kindergarten, right? They're, they're playing with somebody on an online game. They're, they're, they're already experiencing these places without adult supervision. And to me, that, that's the cruelty. That's the cruelty is I want to put them in places where there now is an adult supervision, adult supervision to teach them how to do it correctly because they've probably been doing it without adult supervision for a long time. And so we're already behind the eight ball before we ever put them into these documents, which is why they are a lot of times pushing the boundaries. They want to know, oh, look, this is a chat room. My game that I play at home with my friends has a chat room. 
what can I write in this chat room? Can I say bad words? Can I, and it's, it's exploration, but it's kids being kids to see how far can they push this and how does this relate to the world that I know where there are no adults, right? And as far as giving you all, all you folks confidence that you can do this, I do wanna say you don't have to go buy a digital citizenship curriculum to, to teach this stuff. You need to get students into a collaborative document and have conversations about norms, which you've always done because that's how you started the beginning of your class year. You talked about how are we going to treat each other in here. I had the best story today from a gal named Ruthie, and I don't know if Ruthie's here with us tonight. And I won't do the story nearly as well as she did, but she had an office hour where only two students showed up. And they were two students that had actually gotten into a physical confrontation at school earlier this year. And the, the, ba the backgrounds of the two students were vastly different, but they showed up to this office hour and she thought, well, this is gonna be kind of a weird sort of a thing. And she had these two students coming from two different backgrounds, one where the parents were having to go to work every day so that they could pay rent. And the kid was worried for their safety and his own safety. And the other family was a family who owned a business and was wanting, wanting the government to allow them to work and run their business so that they could pay rent. Both had these fears about their futures. Both were worried about their parents. And yet they came to this meeting and this teacher coached them through being empathetic, understanding the other viewpoint, allowing voices to different voices to be heard. And folks, these are the things that no one is doing on Facebook right now. No one's being empathetic. No one's listening to the other side. Adults aren't doing this well, but we as teachers have been doing this for a long time. So lean into those skills that you have in helping students to get along and learn how to function in this world because you've been doing it so well in your brick and mortar classroom. You just need to move that online and you can do that. I know one of the things that people do in their brick and mortar classroom for expectations for students is they have posters. Yeah, it's called wayfinding and distance learning, but in your classroom, you had posters. You, you lined them up around the room so that students could look around and know what to do. Well, in online classroom management, how are you equipping students with some of those sign boards, those posters, that wayfinding that helps them to know what to do? Are you coaching them through that? And I'm just gonna click through a few of these that we have in the book, be prepared to learn. Do your students know what it's, have you talked with students and parents about, well, probably you should get on a schedule. Probably you should look at, because I'm going to drop my assignments on a schedule. Maybe you want to look at them at a certain time every day, and maybe you want to get dressed and take a shower and go about your day. Are we talking with students about what does it look like to be ready to learn online? Do we talk with students about, this is our poster for, how to get answers to their questions? Ask three before me. But in Washington, we've been talking about the FAQ, right? You're letting students answer each other's questions. You're equipping them. The expectation is don't sit and not get an answer to your question. The expectation is you're all capable learners. The answers are out there. Harness your neighbor, your peer, Google, YouTube. We have posters about being, you know, good etiquette online. The, and you can get these posters over on our website. But how are you making this visible to your students right now? That's a question because some of you I know are already doing it in your slide decks and your Google classrooms and your FAQs and you've got solutions for this. But we do have to help students with these expectations as we move them online.
and think about ways to do that in a distance learning setting. So you, you don't get to print a, well, maybe you do, maybe you do ask your students to print a poster and hang it. I don't know. I don't know what's going to work for your students, but you know, where is that place online, whether it's a Google classroom or a Canvas class or Schoology, I'm not sure what most people in Washington are using. Um, but where, what does it mean to even be prepared to learn if they're learning at home? Like, so that, yeah. I, I think that would be a great conversation. If I were still teaching high school students, knowing that I've already had this conversation with them at school and what it means every day to be prepared to learn that their laptop needs to be charged and this and this and this, I think that would be a great 30 minute lesson right there with my students. All right, we've now, we're all now at home. Let's talk about this. What does it mean for us to be prepared to learn now? And I think, you know, when you said like, I don't know where this goes. One of the places that I come back that I don't think we see as a real learning opportunity is, and Canvas is the only one off the top of my head that I don't think allows this, but in Google Classroom for sure, which 85% of our school districts here use in the state, Heather, just to help you out. Um, but that the header image at the top of your class, right? That you can, you can upload your own header image at the top of a Google Classroom. Would that be a cool place to put, be prepared to learn or ask through, like, what is your, what are your class expectations rather than, and you can change it. So, you know, it can be a fun photo or it can be a photo about whatever, but you know, math or science or whatever. But is that also a place where that is your wall? That's the wall of your classroom. Kids come into your Google Classroom or they come into your Canvas or they come into whatever. Where do you have visuals? Where's your wall that you can maybe post some of these expectations to? And what might that look like? I think that's a really good lens to look at. And I always find that little header at the top is a real opportunity for us to be thinking about, okay, well, that's a spot. I've got a visual cl a clue for my students right here, what am I going to use? What am I going to, how am I going to use that visual clue with my, with my kiddos? Uh, I just think that's an opportunity we have. Yeah, I love that. I hadn't thought about that. I love that. I'm stealing it, Jeff. I'm stealing it. Well, you should, because I only thought about it after you said it, and I never thought about it before just now, but that's the power of being out here, man. I love it. And I, and I do think, you know, we're, we're having those conversations. Teachers in Washington are talking with students about what is it, what does good behavior look like in a office hour, right? People are having those conversations. <laughs> One of the conversations they're having is maybe you should have your back against a wall because your parents don't seem to know that we're right now having this, this chat with a bunch of other students, right? And so we're finding that sometimes people are doing something in the background that maybe they don't want to be on camera with. So, People, what does it look like to be prepared to Zoom? Oh, I need to, you know, tell my family what's going on. And, you know, so that people are having these conversations. Uh, I love kind of pushing this a little further. I actually, you know, Jeff, I don't, we've got 10 minutes left, it looks like. And so I'm going to hop out of the presentation and, and jump forward a little bit. But I didn't know if you wanted to also get to um, Q&A sort of thing. But I know that I did want to talk about partnering with parents. Because that is a... Uh, you know, Heather and I have a section in the book about partnering with parents clear back when this was just about one-to-one -one laptop programs. But it is so much more important now. Parents are trying to support students in doing distance learning, which the students have no practice in. And how are we partnering with parents? What are we providing for them? I wanted to give an example. Um, this is from Yokohama International School, and this is kind of 
a basic thing that they provided for parents that could help their students establishing routines and expectations for your child. Kind of get them on a schedule. Identify a comfortable, quiet space for your child to learn. Right? Let's let's get some routines here. Now, parents are not parents have not thought about what distance learning looks like. They're not getting professional development around distance learning, except from you, the teacher, or you, the school, who might be sending something like this home that encourages them to in a direction of thinking, I'm gonna do exactly how you suggest, but, but how can we provide those sorts of things for parents? Now, that, this is an easy one, right? Because it's a graphic, it's nice and easily readable. You can send it out in the email or however you communicate with parents, put it in the home base, tell the students to take a look at it. But recently, I, I wanna give another example. My fourth grade son's teacher, he's been using Flipgrid and every day my son leaves a comment, a, a, a reply, and today, or yesterday, Oscar came to me and said, Dad, you're supposed to leave the response today. I was like, what? And, and the, the, the video that the teacher left was very much, hey, we've been doing this for two weeks now. I'm, I'd like to hear from your parents on how it's going so I can find out how I can better support them. So kids, you don't leave a, a, a response this time. Go get your parents and ask them to tell me what they think about how distance learning is going and what I could do better for them. I thought that was so brilliant. Taking stock of how it's working for folks and connecting to the parents. I just had another teacher in one of my cohorts talking about how she wants to, she is part, she's never partnered so well with parents before now because she's having one-on-one -on -one conversations with parents of her third graders and about how they can support their learner at home She's like, I've learned so much. I want to do this in my brick and mortar classroom moving forward. I am going to partner with parents in this same way because they are the co-teacher and they want to support the student. Which is their child. Of course they want, of course they want to support. Um, I, I, I love the Flipgrid idea, sorry. I'm still processing. I'm just like, oh my gosh, that Flipgrid idea is amazing. It's another thing I'm going to steal and share with everybody I know. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I, you know, I think it also, it, I, I was, I've talked, so I work with schools across the U.S. Um, and schools from very different parts of the country, rural, urban, um, different socioeconomic levels. Uh, and, and, you know, everybody's situation is different. And I think you have to know who your parents are and how to get in touch with them. Um, I know one of the, and, and you know, this is, it's a little late for this, but thinking about next year, if this is starting up next year, one of the things that one of the schools that I work with did that I thought was brilliant, right away, right when emergency distance learning started, one of the first things that they did is they had, they split up all of the families amongst all of the educators and made sure that every family got a phone call. Every single family got called and talked with somebody at the school to talk about next steps. Um, and I thought that was a great way to kick it off and say, hey, we're here for you. We're in this together. We don't know what we're doing yet, but we're going to work together. Um, so that there's my one, just thinking of partnering with parents and reaching out. Yeah, and I don't think that's going to go away. I was having a conversation I was having a conversation earlier today with another group of educators and we were talking about, you know, in education, we have over the years, I think we have created structures that 
have tried to support kids because one of the inequities that we saw was that you can't control where a child comes from. Right? You can't control that this child has two parents who are both teachers and that child is a, you know, is one of six kids to a, to a single parent. And so what we tried to do in education is we tried to tell parents, Hey, look, we'll, we'll take the kids. We'll do that part. Like a lot of schools have done away with homework because homework was an inequity thing because you know, if you had two parents who were teachers, you always got your homework done. And if you had a parent who was working three jobs, you probably never got your homework done. You didn't have parent support. So one of the reasons why we did away with homework, was because it was, a, it was an equity issue. And now what we're seeing is, is over the years, the schools have taken on more and more and more of that support to make learning as equitable as, equitable as possible. And all of a sudden, we've, we've now flipped this where we need support of, of parents. And I don't know how many parents really know how to support. For example, one of the best read emails from a district I'm working with from the principal was three questions to ask your child about their learning today. And the parents were like, oh my gosh, that is exact. I don't know what questions to ask my child about learning, right? Or three, three home learning tips, because we have taken so much away that I, I think in, in a lot of cases, I think we've broken that partnership. And all of a sudden we're finding ourselves in a crisis situation and we could moving forward where we're really going to have to work on that parent partnership, reaching out to them, having a phone call, saying, hey, how are you doing? How, oh, you're, having, you're struggling motivating your child. Well, here are some things that worked in my classroom. You know, yeah, I had your kid too. I know, sometimes he gets up and just needs to run around. So maybe every 45 minutes, he's gotta go run some laps around the block. I don't know, like that, that you know, I, had a, I was substituting once and we had a bunch of rowdy kids and like literally, I made them go run around the track. The best thing I probably could have done as a sub, they were great the rest of the day. They just had so much energy, right? But I would be calling parents to be like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, yeah? Okay, well, here are some strategies because they're classroom, classroom management strategies that you need to be able to implement at home that I don't think a lot of parents know. I think we've taken a lot of that away. And we're really now trying to now talk with parents around how, how do you support your children in a real learning sense? Not just doing homework, but like in a real learning sense. We need them to dig in. We need you to support. We need you to be their cheerleader. We need you to ask them questions about their learning. We need you to be thinking about this stuff. So and Jeff, I, think, I, guess, I think we can do with that. You're, you're absolutely right. And I just wanted to remind people that our parents are also individuals, right? Like we can't just say parents are this thing. They are a bunch of different people with a bunch of different experiences. And so one concrete thing you can do to help them is offer choice. Give students choice of what you're asking them to do, because some parents want you to give less work and some parents want more work to keep the kids busy. And some parents are saying, no, I, stop communicating to me, school, you're, you're bombarding me with too much stuff. We have parents all over the spectrum here. So if you give students choice and enrichment activities and a choice grid like we've talked about, you're now supporting parents who want to have their students do more. And by, by saying it's a choice thing and this is the one thing they can do and then they could do these other things, you're supporting those parents as well who actually are, might be more on the lines of, I'm gonna put my kid to work for 90 minutes and then I want them to run around and play all day. So we do wanna be supporting the spectrum of parents and you can do that through choice. All right, um, Jeff, were there any questions or anything we wanted to 
jump on there in the chat or was there? Uh, a... There's not a lot of questions. I thought uh, this is a really good one. I, and I like this because this is, first of all, thank you everyone. You know, what I love about this is there are so many people that are asking questions and giving advice in the chat. And, and again, I say this all the time, ladies and gentlemen, we're in a pandemic. We're all just making this up you know, go out and try something and see what happens. Like, you know, people are like, well, how do I do this? I don't know how you do it. I'm just throwing ideas out. You know, we're all trying to figure out how to do this. Uh, that's the thing. But man, I love this. You know, we, we, we actually have some space to throw some stuff out there. And again, you guys are incredible educators who are asking the right questions. You're showing up, you're thinking what's best for kids. And I think right now that is one of the best things we can do is keep asking the questions, keep trying something. And if something's working, please share it with others because uh, you just don't know where that's going to go. So here's one. And I think we've started to see this, Patrick, in some of our trainings. One of the questions that came up in the Q&A is students not engaging in lessons being provided, like not watching the videos or following directions. I, and the teacher says, I can scaffold until the cows come home, but they don't use them. And to me, when I'm reading things like that, and I'm just thinking through this, to me, that goes back to your, your wayfinding or a pathway that I feel a lot of times if things are broken up, like, and I'll just use Google Classroom, because this is to me, one of the things I don't like about Google Classroom is if I post a video and the video gets posted and then it goes down the stream and then the assignment gets posted and it goes down the stream and those things become unhinged from each other versus creating a pathway in like a Google slide where it's very obvious, step one, step two, step three, uh, the power of putting pathways and slides, I think is a way that you can overcome that. But I'm, I'm hearing this from teachers were like, oh my gosh, I put this stuff out there and I'm like, okay, but for somehow we're not, we're not getting the pathway right. And I don't know what that is for those kids, but would you agree with that? What are your thoughts on that idea? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I struggle a bit with that. Sorry, go ahead, Heather. No, you, you go. I'll, I'll jump on. Okay, so I, I, I do struggle a bit with that engagement piece right now because we didn't prepare students for any of this. And so we've sent them off and now we're going to try to recapture their attention. And it is, it is possible that student 973 is not engaged. And I think the only way for us to get to the bottom of that is to talk to student 973. I think, I think we really have to personalize learning in this age. We know that about the organizations that were already doing distance learning. Distance learning that was personalized and kids had a lot of choice in where they went and, and how far they went and how deep they dove versus a course that was just kind of read this, do the multiple choice, read this, do the multiple choice. We have to personalize. And if a student's not engaging, it's probably a personal answer, a personal reason. And we need to reach out and have a conversation with that student individually and find out how might we get them mm. to engage in what we perceive as valuable. And that it might be that. It might be that they don't perceive it as valuable. I don't know, because I haven't had a chance to talk to that kid yet. And yeah, uh, two things in my head. One, um, Jeff, in terms of the wayfinding, I do think it is very important for teachers in general, in the class, distance learning, face-to-face, -to, -face, to be organized. Um, and maybe that's just my bias because I'm an organized person and I like everything all nice and neat. But I say that based on former students of mine in math class who would come to me and say, I remember one student in particular, She first day of math class, she said, I just want you to know, Miss Dowd, I'm not good at math. I'm, I'm a good person, I'm gonna be good in here, but 
I'm just not good at math. And of course I pushed her, we, you know, I believe that uh, everyone can be good at math, doesn't matter. Um, and I pushed her throughout the whole year and, and what we came to find, we had to figure out a way to organize the content for her. And once I figured that out, which was just really good organization, she thrived. And I think this is a similar situation. We have to make it so clear for students what step one is, what step two is. Um, and I think that can improve engagement. But then that takes me to Patrick's point. If, if we've done everything we can do, we've created an engaging lesson, it's very organized and very clear what the expectations are and students aren't engaging, I, I think Patrick has the answer. We have to reach out to each of those individual students and find out what their situation is. Um, are they the oldest of four kids and they have to help all of their siblings do their homework? Are five kids sharing one device and they just don't get the time on their device? You know, and this is, this goes back to just knowing who your students are um, and, and knowing how you can scaffold, maybe isn't the word, but plan the lesson so that the majority of your students, you can bring them along. Yeah. Um, there's so many weird things going on right now that we, we can't just assume every student has a device and great internet, and which I'm sure yeah. you've had all of those conversations too, Jeff. Yeah, and I, you know what I love, and we're gonna wrap this up here, if you wanna put up that last slide, Patrick, because um, we need to get you guys out of here. But um, I, I think part, part of it too is, is you know, one of the things we've been talking about through our trainings is this idea that this is like the largest action research project ever taken under, under education. And if we can view it that way, if we can get excited about that, then you take things like that as a challenge. So I'm just thinking about, because you know, I started laughing, that I thought I was so organized in this class I was running. I was running a bunch of seventh graders. And I thought I was so organized. And this one kid was always off topic. And so I finally sat down with him one day after class. I was like, can you just show me how, how do you, where do you go? And he was going through the learning. He found a different pathway that I didn't even know was there. Like, he's like, oh, I clicked this button over here. And I'm like, well, why would you click that button over there? That's not the, and, but just the way his brain worked didn't match up with the organization that I had. And this happens a lot on website building. If you build websites, you can watch people where you think you put the button to buy the book in the right spot and they click everywhere else except the buy the book button. Like it's just this weird thing. People, people go through their own path. And so reaching out to those kids individually and even just saying, can you show me why you didn't read the directions? Like show me where you clicked and how did you miss where the directions were? Like this is a great time to get even that kind of feedback of I put the video in Google Classroom or I put the video in Canvas. Can you go into Canvas, share your screen, show me where you went that you missed the video. And a lot of times we can get feedback to like, oh, I didn't even think that they would click on home first, then modules and not actually click on assignments, which is where I put the video. Like we can just, we can see some of the, the thought process from that other lens. So I think that's just always something to keep in mind as well. I wanna thank Patrick and Heather for your time. Thank you guys so much. Uh, there has been a request for your slideshow. Is there a way that we can get the published link for that? Yes, um, Jeff, you can go to bit.ly slash wahedcmdigitalh. Wow, right there on the screen. So, oh, and they've already put it in the chat. This is the most incredible crew, I tell you. So there are your slides. Uh, there's where you can get the book as well. We will have this recorded uh, and we will have it somewhere on the Washington Ed website, but you're probably gonna have to show up to know where we end up putting that. So we'll see you back in your cohorts. If you do wanna save the chat, each one of you can save the chat individually. Right over down where you type a message, you'll see those three little dots. 
And under those three little dots, you should be able to click save chat so you can keep all those links for yourself. Go back and look through all the resources that were shared through everybody that was here. So thank you again, Patrick. Heather, Heather's in, uh, where are you at now, Illinois? Illinois, yep. You're in Illinois, so thank you for staying up late tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank Patrick, you, all the way from Kashmir. <laughs> so great to be here. Um, so thank you, everyone. Uh, really appreciate it. And we'll see you next week. We have another webinar. We have one coming every week. Be looking on the, re on the uh, Reimagine Washington Education website to sign up for the next webinar. Thanks, everyone. Have a great night. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Shifting Our Schools with your host, Jeff Udick. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit sospodcast.org, facebook.com slash Jeff Udick, and on Twitter at judick. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time on Shifting Our Schools.